a few words and a few words in the old language to remind myself where these teachings come from. Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo dasa bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Vadandaman Sanghang Saranangajani <clears throat> You flicked it already? Yes. Oh, okay, okay. <clears throat> so, um, <clears throat> with the Beautiful, auspicious ordination yesterday. It seemed like a good time to give a talk that um, focuses on entry into the holy, into the Pekuni holy life. Uh, and first thing I want to say is just flat out word of encouragement. I actually found five precepts difficult to keep, which I don't even want to explain, but I just did. And when I started keeping eight precepts, that was hard, but it was easier than five for me. Because the keeping of virtue had a whole different focus, and, and, and it, this virtue was a vehicle for a whole other way of being. And uh, I would keep, I kept eight precepts in my home for six months at one time, and I would do it periodically, and it just really, um, it just really helped, helped a lot. And then, of course, when I joined my monastery, I, I kept... Uh, eight precepts for about a year and a half before I got novice ordination. <clears throat> Ten precepts was tough, but you know it was easier than eight precepts, uh, and uh, it uh, somehow it just made more sense. Like the Buddha said, you know, the for the those for whom money is suitable, the five chords of sensual pleasure are suitable. And I was making a gesture of finding meaning in life that did not uh, look to uh, five chords of sensual pleasure as, a, uh, as, as an ideal, but as something to let go. Um, so the, the ending of the handling of money was was good. And, 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 you know, there are a lot of times that things are quite awkward at, at eight precepts. So many times things are awkward at ten precepts. Generally, however, overall, the ten precept form was much easier than the eight precept form. It just made more sense. And, you know, people had me pretty scared about the whole thing about keeping all these precepts. It's a pikuni. I mean, 311, that's quite a jump so much easier than 10 precepts. It was so much easier. Finally, it all made sense. It's like it clicked into the holy life. It's like having been trying to ride a bicycle with the gears in between. And finally, now the gears have caught and it's working. And yes, so much easier. And of course, you know, in moments it can be weird and awkward, but as a lifestyle, as a way of being, as a way of uh, of, of living, oh, it 
makes sense. It has a place that it fits. It, um, it, the, the image that came to my mind soon after my high ordination, either that day or within days, was that it was as though I had been trying to live hopping on one foot as a ten preceptor, and now I had both feet. Now I had both feet. And before as an eight preceptor too, I kind of felt like I was doing this at the discretion, the, the pleasure, the mercy of you know, the person who gave me all those precepts. And now there was no one person who kind of had my holy life in his care or, and, and could give it or take it at his pleasure. This, was, this had to do with me and the song. It had to do with me and the Buddha. And uh, it just felt like a um, so much more grounded, stable way to live the holy life. So that was the first word of encouragement I wanted to make. And now, um, exhortation. <clears throat> you know, there could be a temptation when a, a new bhikkhuni comes in where you have one or two bhikkhunis uh, who have been managing the place, running the place. Um, you know, I, I'm told the etymology of the word Lord is the person whose bread one eats. I don't know if you've heard that. The word Lord meaning the person whose bread one eats. So that's why you would have like the Lord of the manor, the Lord of the family. Um, or, you know, the God Lord, but thinking also in terms of, you know, within, within family structures, there would be kind of a patriarch who would be the Lord of this clan or family because he's the one who's everybody, whose bread everybody's eating. Well, even though as Pekunese we're all kind of having an equal voice, we don't have this, you know, as Bikus and Pekunese don't, in, in the way I see the life uh, encouraged in Vinaya and the way it's lived that I appreciate most, it's not a strict hierarchy where, you know, this one tells all these others what they ha do have to do and then they have to do it. That's not the um, the format that I see given in the Vinaya, not the format I see working best um, in, in bhikkhus and bhikkhunis communities. Um, however, there, there are the bhikkhunis whose bread everyone else is eating. The ones who got the, got the infrastructure together. You know, the, the money didn't just jump itself into the donation boxes because it just, all these little dollar bills said, I just, and checks said, I just want to be in a, in a Bikini donation box. I'm just going to leap myself in there. There was groundwork. There were conversations. There was so much that happened where person by person, moment to moment, day to day, the way certain bhikkhuni leaders lived their lives caused so much inspiration among lay people that they started moving heaven and earth, which is what it basically takes, to create infrastructure. The creation of infrastructure is miraculous. It's amazing. It's astonishing. I'm still pretty darn proud of myself that I've got a rental. <laughs> I think it's pretty darn phenomenal. I ended up homeless. I'm like, okay, I'll create a, I'll create a Vahara in my hometown. And I did. Without <laughs> any monk supporting me. 
any nuns supporting me, you know, nobody there, hands on, right there with me to make it happen. Um, but my my virtue and my, you know, way of being and my uh, ability to help the people based on Lord's, but I mean, the Buddha is giving us so much help. Uh, this caused people to come together and 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 to make it happen. Uh, if anyone comes and joins me, I'm the person who's bread, in a sense. I mean, really, we're all eating the Buddha's bread. Mm-hmm. But the people who inspired and organized and made all the phone calls and the emails and all the stuff that you really don't want to do, they did. <laughs> and with enough poise that they didn't make people mad, which is pretty amazing. Anyone joining me will be eating the bread of years, years of labor, years of softening the ground and making everything possible, years of training people who don't know what they're doing, that actually the food goes into this bowl, (laughs) into my hand and so forth. Years of consistency. So even though we're all equal, karmically there's a big difference. And, and it is to be respected. We're in different positions. You know, three human beings living in a house, a mother, a father, and a, say, a son or daughter. By the age of 13, the, the, the child is saying, I'm the same as you. We're equal. You want my room clean? You go do it. <laughs> parents have made, like, unbelievable, unbelievable sacrifices for the young one. Um, so we, we never want to do that. Um, now, these particular bikinis here, I don't see them as the type that would say, look here you, <laughs> we're the ones who put this together, you're junior, and you know we're really the ones who are in charge. I don't, I don't see them as doing that. I might, <laughs> but I don't share all of their good qualities. Um, <clears throat> So then the person who, who is the newcomer, it's, it's incumbent on them to remember it. Because they're not going to be told from the top again and again and again. Okay, though we're equal, still we're the ones with the background, the experience, and the years of labor. We're still the ones holding your head above water. They won't say it. Um, so it's incumbent on the new person to see it themselves and rein themselves in so that it doesn't become a burden of the people on, who, who are the leaders to try to communicate it. How do we convey this and how do we you know, make it work? They shouldn't have to. The new person needs to understand. They need to know. <clears throat> that said, um, the leaders aren't perfect. Um, they're not perfect, you know. They, I don't. I no longer play the guessing game of who's got it, who's there, who attained. You know, I went around chasing after monks, trying to find the truly enlightened ones, so I could like glom onto them and get some, you know, fairy stardust off of them to help me on my path. And I realized that that's ridiculous. They could be enlightened, or they cannot be enlightened. That's not going to get me enlightened. It's actually not of my business whether. There's that uh, person is enlightened. 
And an unenlightened teacher might actually have more insight into my problems to say just the thing I need to hear. So what I actually need to do is assess the tama that they are demonstrating and that they are speaking and see how it can help me. And in, in that way, <clears throat> um, benefit from a person, from the wisdom of a person, whether it's complete wisdom or, or, or uh, completely incomplete, or rather incomplete wisdom. Doesn't matter that you know somebody with less wisdom might actually, you know, in in college, I would have these teaching assistants that I didn't need in any subject in the humanities, but I needed in every subject that was uh, any kind of science or, or math related, and they, they were completely useless. They were brilliant. They were t teaching assistants because they were grad students who were brilliant in these topics. They couldn't teach me anything. They were way above me. I couldn't understand them at all. <clears throat> so first we want to give up the guessing game of who's enlightened and who's not enlightened. And then we want to um, respect our, our fellows as, as though they're enlightened. For one thing, you know, their, their teaching quality is to be found in our own experience as we apply the teachings, not based on who they are, but on how can we use their teachings. Uh, and, um, you know, some teaching assistants who are not so far out there are going to be helpful. And you might think that a fully enlightened person would never annoy. This is one of the big mistakes that people out there make, you know. They think, I can tell if someone's enlightened because enlightened people don't hurt my feelings. Wrong. So the, the canon has these amazing stories, especially the commentaries have these amazing stories of in fully enlightened people who really irritated the heck out of fellow samanas. Do you know some of these stories? Have you heard them? Yes? No? <clears throat> classics is that, I can't think of his name at the moment, but there was this monk who um, his psychic powers um, became widely known when um, he, uh, he saw uh, a, a lay supporter whose daughter was upset because she didn't have any kind of jewelry or bangle or anything. So he told, them, told her to create a little tiara out of flowers. And then by his psychic power, he turned the flowers into gold and, uh, and, and went his way, not thinking anything about it. And then uh, eventually the whole family ended up in prison because the king thought that they must have stolen such a, something that was better than anything in his harem, in the jewelry of his harem. So that, that's kind of an example of an enlightened one not having a lot of practical sense of like, cause and effect of what will happen socially. And um, then uh, he went to the, when he learned his, his family was in, his people that he'd helped uh, were in prison, he went to the king and he said, uh, good king, have you heard anything about such and such family? Yeah, they must have been thieves, put them in prison. He said, king, could you think of any other reason that this family might have had such a tiara? And when he said that, he turned every object into the room, in the room into gold. 
every single object. So the king and all his courtiers saw this, and he said, ah, yes, Venopal Sir, I can think of another reason. So then he looks at the family. Then the whole world knew this monk was very special. So they started um, donating massive quantities of things to this monk. Uh, and, um, and, and then the, the monastery got overrun with rats because they had such a massive quantity of honey, such a massive quantity <laughs> of geese. <laughs> like, he didn't see that by doing the psychic feat to the king, there could be consequences, like the social stuff. He's like up here, the social stuff's down there, and he's not getting it. So that's another of my favorite stories of, you know, enlightened ones who are just um, not really in sync with, um, you know, what's practical and all. Um, this same enlightened one uh, had this horrific habit of referring to people as outcasts, and, and apparently in a word that was sort of like the N-word, like he would call people this. And uh, the monks were all up in arms over it, and they were criticizing, and the Buddha called them together, and he said, don't, don't criticize this monk, my son, who is my son. He, he is fully enlightened. He was a Brahmin 500 lifetimes. This is an old habit of his. Don't, don't be angry with him. See, it's dangerous to get angry with somebody who's fully enlightened. Um, now, if you were to meet a monk who's going around doing that, would you say, well, obviously he's not enlightened? I mean, you might, but there could be, could be that he actually just is off socially. Another of my favorite stories of monks being off socially, to where people think they're not enlightened, is that uh, there was um, uh, a, a man who had a family ceremony that he was uh, told uh, by his wife to be sure to get a you know a very great monk to come to their home and officiate, and so receive their food, and they, they just really wanted a truly enlightened one, not some loser monk. But he didn't get to choose, he just gets some old monk, so he takes the monk along, he's carrying the monk's bowl and robe, he's, he's kind of churning in his mind that he's really hoping he's got a really enlightened one and not just some lousy, ordinary monk. And they came to <clears throat> uh, a, a, a chasm in the road, like there was a washed out bit of road um, that was uh, it was very deep, but not wide. And um, I'm sorry, I took a back. That was very, very wide and shallow. And uh, the um, the layman, of course, stepped down into it and walked across. And the monk took this incredible leap across it, like just robes everything, just flying, just whoa, right all across it. And the layman was so shocked had this ridiculous behavior of this monk to just just throw himself across this chasm when anybody would get down and walk. Well, they get to another washed out bit in the road where it was actually quite narrow, a very, very just easy, easy to hop across and deep. So the layman just sort of made a little dignified hop and the monk climbs down in it and crawls back up the other side. And the man, at this point, has had it with this idiot. He's so disappointed. He really wanted a good one, and he's got this fool. And he says, that's it. Why are you acting like this? Why did you do that? And the monk said, oh, well, when I hopped across the first one, you had the thought that 
you were still going to give me the meal, but you wouldn't give me the gift because I was just this loser monk. And so I thought I'd better not do that again. So that's why I climbed down in the second one. <laughs> the monk, the man had been thinking that, oh, this is so disgusting. I'll, I'll, I'll give him the meal, but not the gift. So he thought, oh, I better not do that again. So he crawled down the, the second one. The layman was shocked, contrite, bowed, again took the bowl and robe of the monk and, and venerable sir, please come this way, um, took him to his home with um, uh, great um, respect. And then later the monk said, why did he leap across a wide break in the road in the first place? But he said he was a monkey for 500 lifetimes. <laughs> he just leaped, he just had some old habit. Here's another question regarding enlightenment. You know, there are four stages of enlightenment. Uh, let's say somebody's at the first stage of enlightenment. Could they get emotional? Could they lose their temper? Totally. Could they fall down on the ground, ripping their clothing in anguish? Or are they beyond that? When you think of when the Buddha was on his Parinibbana bed, his deathbed, the ones who were only Sotapanas were on the ground, rolling around, tearing their clothing and weeping. So under the right provocations, that is possible for a Sotapanna, according to scripture. Under the right conditions, they could still lose it. So um, the Buddha warned repeatedly and quite clearly, be very, very careful not to judge one's fellow Samanas. You really just don't know. Um, the, um, there was one who was very undignified looking. He was a, a, a dwarf. He had a beard. He was very short, bent over. And the, the people would go and kind of bop on his head and pull his beard. The, the monks would. <laughs> don't do this. Don't do this. He's fully enlightened. Don't do this. But people make funny judgments, you know. Mm. Another hazard is that, you know, a monastic could be just really showing that they're not fully enlightened. I mean, you could see it so clearly, you could make your judgments, and the next day they might be, because the holy life actually works. The Dhamma is powerful and real, and it truly works. Uh, so, uh, to make a harsh judgment about somebody who is enlightened is, is very dangerous, actually. Um, commentary gives the story of the the uh, bhikkhuni who saw that as this group of bhikkhunis were circling a stupa that one of them had hocked up spit in a really nasty way and she said what whore what prostitute did this well it actually was an enlightened bhikkhuni that she was mocking and uh, in her next life she was reborn be a beautiful, talented woman who got very good education and ended up being voted the prostitute for the town, the, the town courtesan, because their town didn't have a courtesan and another town had a courtesan and it's kind of like, you know, the mascot or something. Like They felt like they needed one and so they voted that she had to do it. <laughs> and this was the result of calling a, a enlightened one a name such as that. So there was um, uh, a bhikkhuni who was so distressed and distracted and tormented by her emotions that she decided to hang herself. And after she threw the noose over the limb and put it around her neck, 
she suddenly saw the truth and became fully enlightened. So somebody could be that close to enlightenment and yet um, that much in that much rockiness. Mm-hmm. And someone who knows her to be that, you know, that that hot mess sees her the next day, they might just treat her in a dismissive way, having no idea. And she's now a saint. <laughs> you, you know, these things can happen. And here's a one that I was wanting to get to. Uh, the verses of a certain nun in the poems of five verses of the Tarigata. It's and this is the um, the Halasi Hall- uh, translation. It's been twenty-five years since I renounced, but not for a moment, not even a finger snap, did I experience stilling of my mind, with no peace in my heart, dripping with sexual desire. That's a different translation. It's actually than we normally see, but that's actually technically more correct. With no peace in my heart, dripping with sexual desire, I entered the monastery, wailing, my arms outstretched. Well, wasn't she a joy for the last 25 years? Can you imagine if you had to go, like, on Pendabot with her? <laughs> if you had to share a room with her? 25 years! She must have been such a jerk, trying to control everything. Like, she is so... She's dripping with misery and lust and angst. 25 years of this. And then you get the, you know, when she's at 24 years, you get the new bikinis going, oh, I don't want to be like her, right? And that day she becomes fully enlightened. She uh, encounters, according to the commentary, it was Dhammadina. She found a bikini fit to be trusted and followed her instructions. She taught me the Dhamma, um, the Kandadhyatanadhatuyo. Uh, Dhamma, about what makes a person, about the senses and their objects, and about the basic elements that make up everything. Hearing the Dhamma from her, I came to her side. I think I like the translation. I sat down at one side, and meaning she sat there and in one session, lear- having learned from the Spikani, became fully enlightened. There's some others that indicate that happening. But anyway, this translation, she just now says, I know my previous lives, and the eye that can see the invisible is clear, the, the divine eye. I know the ways of my heart, now I hear clearly, powers beyond normal or known at first hand. The depravities that ooze, the um, uh, uh, as, asana, the depravities that ooze out from within are wasted away. The six powers attained, the teaching of the Buddha is done. So she was that much of a mess for 25 years that when she got the right teaching from the right teacher she was able to make that um, that breakthrough and can you imagine you had to deal with this this nun maybe she was your senior nun or maybe you were named before her and you had to deal with her as your junior nun oh great here she comes and then the next day she's changed if you treat her the same way, <laughs> it might be a mistake. Better just be respectful and assume everybody's on their path. They're doing their best. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, uh, not you, you can't judge. You know, somebody might have an annoying habit or a wrong view, not a wrong view, an, an annoying habit or a bad, be, really bad behavior, but they know it's wrong. They may be right 
that close to completely changing it and, and some various other things about themselves, whereas somebody else might not, not do things as wrong, but have wrong views so thick they'll never change this lifetime. Mm. Only a Buddha can see the differences between these people. And, and the one who has the right view, even though they're doing wrong, may be really poised to make a breakthrough. And so that's part of why people in the holy life are in such a potent uh, situation, because we are learning right view. And once we're holding right view, anything can happen. You know, with a little bit of practice too, and right view, it's powerful. I just want to finish up by examining this word uh, about what here is translated about what makes a person, about the senses and the, their objects, about the basic elements that make up everything. That's a, that's a way to unpack this tight little phrase, this one word phrase of kandayatana dhatuyo. But it's the kanda, the ayatana, and the dhatu. <coughs> so the kanda are the five, the five kandas, the five aggregates, Form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. Dhatu are your four basic elements, earth, uh, water, air, and fire. And um, that was the dhatu. And the ayatana are the 12 sense bases, the six inner sense bases, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, and the six outer sense bases of um, form of um, sight, sounds, taste, smells. Uh, tangibles and mental objects. So a way to remember, um, by the way, think of your, your five aggregates and your 12 sense bases are the same list, sliced and diced differently. So you can think of the five aggregates as like your hand. Your, th your thumb is the, the, the body, the, 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 the form part. Uh, and the four fingers are the mental parts. So you have the rupa, uh, the bodily or physical aspect, and then the four mental vedana, uh, feeling, um, sanya, perception, sankara mental or karma formations, vinyana, consciousness. So like that. Whereas your 12 sense bases or six sense bases by two, look, think, think of it in terms of the six sense bases, is like the, the, the five sense bases are the physical part with one as the mind. So it's like six fingers. Five fingers on one hand and the thumb <laughs> making it up. So you can see how, how close they are. So one has the mind as one thing with the rest of it divided up into the various aspects of body. And the other has body as one thing with the rest of it broken up as various aspects of mind. Same list, just focused differently. And then you have the dhatu, which is the physical reality of, uh, of the, the earthy experience of your physical reality, the watery experience of your physical reality, the um, fiery experience of your physical reality, and the air and movement experience of physicality. Um, so, um, so she taught this bhikkhuni the five aggregates, six or twelve sense bases, and the 
four elements. So she's teaching her how to look at body and mind, to see the reality and not grab the, the, the bait of all these pleasures of body, but to see what's really here and what's really going on. And with just that right information from a trustworthy person who didn't judge her, who didn't push her aside, who didn't look down on her, but just gave her the data, she was ready. She became fully enlightened very quickly. So I, I hope my exhortation tonight has been useful. I hope it sort of made sense as a coherent piece. And uh, with that, uh, I come to a close. Thank you. Andamayang tamakataya satu karangatamase Sadu 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 Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate.